in the book of Mark, 12th chapter, there's a story told by Jesus. Here's the story. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He still had another one, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We uh, last week began in the book of Hebrews, where we read this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. When he sends the Son, the Son represents him perfectly. Perfectly. These last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much better than the angels. And he has inherited a name more excellent than theirs. Now, last week, we looked at the first three verses, and we kind of left off that sentence about the angels, because the rest of the chapter is about that, so... You know, I had to decide where to make the cutoff. But that part, that first part about the angels, he became much better than the angels, is actually a part of the sentence. The whole first four verses are all one sentence. And that sentence has an interesting structure. Now, I hope you have a bulletin with you because... I don't usually do this, but this morning I want to show you the structure. So I've printed it in the bulletin. <laughs> and this structure has a, like an arrow shape. 
And that's because it's pointing at something. It's pointing at the thing in the middle. The sun is the radiance of his father's glory and the exact image of his nature. The son of God is God. So we see that at the beginning he spoke through the prophets and but the son of God is superior to the prophets and then at the end he's superior to another group of messengers the angels. Angel the very word angel means messenger. So the angels speak for God, the prophets speak for God. Those two things go together. So we mark those with A and what we call A prime. And then if you move in from there, he spoke in his son. And his son sat down at the right hand. So the son comes as the word of God, the speech of God, and the son returns to God. He's from God and to God. And then if you go in one more layer, he's appointed him heir of all things. And he's the one who made purification for sins. Now, there's a very interesting connection between those two ideas, which we'll talk about later. And then he made the ages through his son. He created the universe. The word universe here is the word for eternity. The word for forever. He made the forevers, the times, the history the ages, through his son. He made everything, this is a way of saying everything, through his son. Who's, and then we read in the second part, D, he sustains all things. He made all things, he sustains all things. And this brings us to, he is the radiance of the glory of God. If you ask What is the shine on God? The answer is Jesus. And he is the exact representation of his nature. So when Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father, Jesus says, I've been showing you the Father. If you see me, you see him. And so we have this this arrow pointing at Christ. And the very point of the whole book of Hebrews is the Lord Jesus, Jesus, the man Jesus, is the Son of God in among us. God with us, as he's called, Emmanuel. Now the other thing we could notice about the structure is the first things are things the Father has done, and the second thing The second set of things are things the Son does. The the Father spoke through the prophets. The Father spoke in his Son. The Father appointed his Son the heir of all things. The Father made the world through the Son. And then we switch, and now the Son is certain things. The Son is the radiance of his glory, the image of his nature. The Son sustains all things. The Son made purification of sins. The Son sat down at the right hand of the Father. The Son is better than the angels. So there's like a reflection. It's like there's a mirror here. The Father reflected in the Son. 
the point of all of this, this is amazing literary structure built into this sentence. It's, it's uh, better than Shakespeare. It's really incredible. And by the way, there's a lot of this sort of thing in the book of Hebrews. The guy who wrote Hebrews was some kind of writing genius. But anyway, in any case, you see the, the idea of the reflection is in the structure of the sentence, not just in what the sentence says. So that, the, so that Jesus, the man who God sent, Jesus is the perfect reflection of God Almighty, eternal God. Wow. As we proceed through the book of Hebrews, we will see over and over and over again that the Lord Jesus, the man Jesus, the Son, is so superior that to be privileged to be related to him, to be in him, is the place of absolute highest position, and therefore to do or go anywhere else would be a mistake of unthinkable magnitude. And the reason the writer is writing the letter is because he's heard that there's people in the churches that he's writing to that are considering the possibility of departing. And he cannot figure out how anyone could possibly consider that possibility. And so he wonders if they're even in Christ. He wonders if they've ever met Christ because Christ is so superior. And so we see through the book these cycles of, look, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, consider him, consider him. Think of what he's done. Think of who he is. And I'm sure if you do that, you'll persevere in Christ. So we have these cycles of, of privilege and perseverance through the whole book. Now, he says in verse 4, having become much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name. Now, we are talking, of course, of the Son of God. So I just want to stop because there's a point of confusion here for me. And maybe it'll confuse you if I point it out to you. How does the Son of God, when did he become better than angels? You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth the Son of God pre-exists the angels. He was there before the angels. The angels are made by him because everything that has been made was made by him. When did he become better than the He He's always been better than the angels, no? Well, here's when he became better than the angels. You see, the scripture says, for a little while he was made a little lower than the angels. When? Well, that, 
that day when he was born and put into a feed box, he was made a little lower than the angels. That day when he became one of us, he was made a little lower than the angels. (laughs) And now, that guy, the man Jesus, has become better than angels. The man Jesus has inherited a more excellent name than theirs. This is Philippians chapter 2, verse 11, right? You remember this verse? It's famous. I'm, I'm going to turn to it so I don't accidentally misquote it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, becoming a little lower than the angels. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Who? Jesus, the man. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The name of the angels. So that at the name of Jesus... That's the man. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's the name that is above all names, to the glory of God the Father. And in this instance, the, the word Lord, I think, is a substitute for the word Yahweh, the, the eternal name of God. There is a human being now who bears that name seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, the incarnation of the Son is utterly essential to all of these things. If he's not born, if he's not one of us, he's not the speech of God, he's not the heir of all things, he's not the one who made the ages, he's not the radiance of his... Radiance to who? The whole idea here is that the Word of God, the Son of God is the Word of God, made flesh in the human being, Jesus. And that one has now been exalted above all. Now the Son of God is eternal and is who he is always above and always beyond and always has been and lowers himself for a moment to save everything and then is exalted again to the right hand. 
Now, what the writer of the book of Hebrews does from here is prove it from the Bible. <laughs> so you'll see, if your Bible's arranged like mine at least, you'll see a series of quotations from the Old Testament scriptures. The first one is from Psalm chapter 2. It's what part of the reading we just read. So he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You're my son, today I've begotten you? Well, God never said that to any angels. Or, to, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's from Psalm 2.7 and from 2 Samuel 7.14. Now, it's interesting because these texts are about more than one person. Because they're about the king of Israel. And they are about the king of Israel, who was the king of Israel at the time they were written, either David or Solomon. But they're also about Messiah, and they've been recognized for hundreds of years by the time this was written to be about Messiah, the son of David, who would be king of Israel. And God promises David that his son, a son of his, will be the eternal king of Israel. So there's a connection here to all the promises of God to David. It's about the sonship. These, these texts are both about how the Messiah is the son. The anointed one is the son. And so our writer is connecting son of God to son of man to son of David. It's about the necessity of the incarnation. The Son of God must be the Son of David. And he will be, in these texts, the King of Kings. You, we just read that from Psalm 2 about the you know, kings bow down to the Son. In that instance, or else, he's the king of kings. He goes on, he quotes from another passage, he says, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him, of the, and of the angels, he said, he makes his angels winds, <clears throat> and his ministers or servants a flame of fire. Those are both references to the angels. This is a quotation from the Septuagint, from the Greek Bible of the Old Testament of the time in which this was written. I know that's a little confusing, but in Deuteronomy 32:43, in that text, we read this, O heavens, rejoice together with him, and let all the sons of God worship him. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, and let all the angels of God regain their strength. In him. And this is a reference to that one who will come to vindicate God's people on God's behalf, the Son. And the point here is the angels are commanded to worship him. Looks forward to the consummation of the reign of God over the nations. <clears throat> 
and the reign of God over the nations will be executed in a person, a human being, that is anticipated by these texts. Then he quotes from Psalm 104. He makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. His angels, in this case, are messengers and servants ministers, worshipers. And they're called in this text, in other texts, the sons of God. So they're sons of God and the son of God. And the point here is the sons of God worship the son of God and serve and deliver his messages. He's the king and they are the servants of the king. Reminds me of that text in Isaiah, you know, when we're before the throne of God and there's angels around just crying out, holy, holy, holy all the time. Shaking the ground, the whole building made of giant stone is shaking from the singing of the angels or or yelling, I can't tell which, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that worship is applied in this text to God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And our writer here is pointing out that the Old Testament has been saying from the very beginning all along that the angels worship the Son of God. Then he goes on to quote from uh, Psalm 45. Your throne, O God. Well, who's this? It's God, obviously. Well, he says here, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God... Your God has anointed you. Uh Uh-oh. Now this is in the Hebrew Scriptures. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. And the writer of Hebrews later on in the book will make an argument from this. The Lord says to my Lord... Well, who's he talking about? He's talking about the Father God and the Son God. He's also talking about the Messiah, the anointed King of Israel. But if he calls him God, he can't be talking about David or any king other than the Lord Jesus himself, who is God and man, God made flesh, God to serve as the man, the king of Israel. He doesn't say that about any angels. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness, of uprightness, and the scepter of your kingdom You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And then he goes on. 
And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands, and they will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed. But you're the same, and your years have no end. Who's this about? This is from Psalm 102, famous messianic psalm. And here the Messiah is pictured as the creator. The one who laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. The one anointed by God to be the Christ. The creator of earth and heaven, the mover, the sustainer. All these things we just read in the first three verses of Hebrews. If you ask the question, well, where did the writer of Hebrews get these ideas? Well, here he is telling you where he got these ideas in the Old Testament scriptures. He also got them from Christ through one or the other of the apostles. But in any case, this one is eternal. That's the point of this whole text, you know, that everything else perishes, but you remain. And to which of the angels has he ever said in verse 13, sit at my right hand? Oh, so we're back to the sit at my right hand. You see how these things are sort of unfolding what he announced in the beginning. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is from Psalm 110 about the messianic king. This is, you know, the psalm initially is addressed, uh, I think, to Solomon, but I'm not sure. But it's addressed, it's, a, it's always been taken as a psalm of reflection on the Messiah who will come. The messianic king. Sit at my hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And so we're looking forward here. Where's Christ today? Where is Jesus, the man today, seated at the right hand until the Lord, may, the, Lord the Father makes the Lord's enemies his footstool where we see the fulfillment of that stuff we read from Psalm 2. And the angels here, it says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels are ministering, sent, serving for the sake of those who inherit salvation. They're not seated. The angels are not seated. They're busy. The Lord is seated. And all of this is just the Bible proof of what he said at the beginning, which is, the Lord has spoken lots of different ways in various times. He used the prophets to speak to our fathers. But now, these last days, here at the end of the story, we live in the end of the story because Jesus is the conclusion of the story. Everything is summed up in Him. He's the heir of all things. He's the consummation of all things. He is the one in whom we inherit salvation and anything else. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. 
whom he appointed heir of all things. Conclusion. Through whom he created the world, the beginning. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe. He carries everything from the beginning to the end. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand. So there's just three things I want to point out that we need to notice from all this. The first is, all of this, it's, it's still about God speaking. In fact, all these scripture references are just to make the point, the sun is far above even the angels. Do you think of angels as high? I'll tell you, if an angel showed up in front of you, it would scare you to death. And I know that because of all the stories in the Bible where some angel showed up and everyone was terrified. The sun is above the angels. Is there a... Is it a problem if you don't recognize when something is very important? (laughs) I have this recurring nightmare. I'm sitting in a class. Usually I'm back in my university days. This was a long time ago. I don't have this dream very often anymore, but I used to have it a lot when I was in school. And I'm sitting in class, and the professor comes in and he says, okay, everyone, put your pencils away. It's time for the test. And I'm like, what test? That is terrifying. I'm sorry, now I'm going to give you all a bunch of this dream. But uh, it's like, oh, no. My career is ruined because I did not notice the importance of this day. Is there a problem if you don't notice when something's very important? Sure can be. Jesus is the most important thing you should notice. This is still about how God speaks. God speaks in Christ the Son. And the revelation of God is complete in Jesus. There's nothing left out of the communication that we have in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus and in what, how he lives, what he does, how he dies, how he's risen, how he ascends, how he is seated now interceding for you and me, and how he will come again to reign forever as king. No one is more important, and nothing is more important to you than what is your relationship to him. The revelation of God is complete. If you see him, you will see God. In fact, the scripture says in 1 John chapter 3 that when you see him, when he returns and you see him, You'll be like him because you'll see him. You will find it unavoidable to imitate him having seen him. 
his person, his representation of all that God is will be so compelling to you that you will immediately begin to live as you as an expression of him. You won't be able to help yourself. No one's going to force you. It's sheer admiration that will draw this from you. Oh, and by the way, that could start now. If you see him, you want to be like him. And if you're finding yourself not wanting much to be like him, it's because your vision is cloudy of him. What did we say last week? Whatever your problem is, your problem is you're not paying enough attention to Jesus. The revelation of God is complete in the Son. And then the last thing I want to say is this. The revelation of God in Jesus Christ saves everything. Everything, not just you and me, everything. This is the connection I was talking about earlier in our parallel structure in verses 1 to 3, where we find Jesus' appointment as the heir of all things, the one in whom history will find its conclusion, the one who receives everything in the end. How much of things? All things. All things. You could read about this in Colossians chapter 1 as well. Uh, All things find him in the end. How? He made purification of sins. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, when Adam sinned in particular, when Adam and Eve sinned, All creation broke. You can read about this in Romans chapter 8, where we're told that all of creation is groaning for the day of the realization of our salvation in resurrection in Christ. You see, Christ is not just restoring people to fellowship with God. He's restoring everything to God's intended purpose and plan. So right now, to make a living, I'm looking out here, man. It wasn't that long ago when we you know, cleared all those weeds out of there and you could park your car over there and now the stupid weeds are back. And we're going to have to go out there and do it again and again. And again. everything we gain from the earth, we have to fight the earth for it. That's what Genesis 3 says. By the sweat of your brow, you'll get a living from the earth. And we get, we've gotten pretty good at it. But it's still a battle. I hear something. We dig stuff out of the oil, out of the earth and we burn it and it cools our houses off very nicely and that kind of stuff. 
does all kinds of cool things. We can do amazing things. And then, you know, 50 or 70 years later, we find out that burning that stuff is killing something else that we kind of need. I'm not trying to make a political statement there, by the way. I'm just saying, we do pretty good, and then later we find out we thought we were doing pretty good, and we were messing something up at the same time. We can't help. It's a struggle. The revelation of God in the Lord Jesus Christ will redeem everything so that in the end, in the eternal kingdom of God, when we enjoy the presence of God in Christ, when we see him, everything sees him and everything is healed. I, you know, we're going to barely recognize the place in those days. It won't, you won't have to fight to eat. The Lord Jesus is all. <laughs> the, the triune God is exhibited to us in him. Now, the Spirit of God gives us the eyes, clears up our seeing problem so that we correctly see Christ for who he is. And we trust in him. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in all of these things. But here, what we're trying to point out here is, if the world makes it hard for you to speak the name of Christ, remember who he is. If the world wants to impose some penalty upon you, for your association with him. Remember how high he is. Remember the exalted person that has deigned, sorry, that's not a good word, has come down to associate with you and to claim you and to put his name on you. This is a privilege that you cannot possibly estimate. It is worth any price that might be required. This is the point of the book of Hebrews. And he's going to come around and around and around to say, if you understand the privilege of knowing Christ, you will persevere in faithfulness to Christ. That's, the, that's what we're looking at here. So whatever your difficulty is, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Father, we give you thanks. <laughs> it just seems like such a weak thing to say. But we, what else can we do? Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Christ and to run the race that you've set before us with endurance because we see him so clearly. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.